welcome to the unapologetic truths podcast with your host me harsh strongman and armani talks we're trying out a new format for the show where instead of posting it on armani's channel now we have a separate channel for unapologetic truths we took your feedback you guys said that you wanted it on a separate channel a separate feed you could subscribe to and we've brought it to you so from now on this channel will have all the unapologetic truths podcast episode 21 and henceforth and we will also set up a separate podcast page for those of you who don't want to watch it on youtube and yeah that is the announcement for today and now we can begin how are you doing arman i'm doing well harsh i mean this has been a eventful podcast for the past couple of months uh and i've been getting to know you very well and I'm excited for the adjustment that we're making. How's everything been going with you? Likewise, brother, and everything is going well with me. Life is good. I heard you just got done with Ramzan and you had Eid. How is that going? And how were I, the fasts? So the fasts were unique to say the least harsh. I mean, I mentioned before that I'm normally fasting, so it's not too much of a difference. but the whole change with the the water like when you can't have water that's a big game changer uh so it went well i mean uh, ramadan is officially done so i'm back to you know getting back into it and i've been lifting more again i don't know if you know this harsh but did you know that there's a lot of bodybuilders uh, that talk about how to uh, get bigger during ramadan Is that possible if you're not eating a lot of food do you can you still get bigger Well that was the that was the thing that I didn't get initially about it because uh, there were a few bodybuilders that were popping up I would say 2 3 years ago uh, I don't recall their names but they were giving you different strategies on how to get bigger um, even during fasting and they were talking about how you have to eat more peanut butter fats uh, and more oils Do you think that's something that would work long term or do you have a different philosophy with that? I doubt it. I'm not a bodybuilder, but you can't your body can't turn fatty acids into amino acids. So you can't gain muscle by eating more fat. And that's what you're doing, right? When you're eating more oils and peanut butter, you're eating more calories, but these calories are fat. And your body can't convert fatty acids into essential amino acids so i am not sure if these guys are on the right path with hinduism do you guys have any moment where you're doing something like that where you're fasting or you're cutting something out yeah so hinduism has a lot of these different days where you're supposed to do a fast and a lot of them are done by women actually like for the health and luck of their husbands etc So yeah we have these things but I'm not aware of anything that lasts like 16 17 days. Or so, I think Ramadan lasts like 16 days, right? So Ramadan lasts for the entire month. A month. Yes. I I've had people you know how nowadays more people are getting curious about different cultures. Mm-hmm. So they'll start it and they'll be like I'm going to fast with you as well. and they'll try it out in the beginning stages and it hits them they're like whoa man like like the food part i can do without but the whole water part that's the thing that gets me and no coffee either 
um do you drink coffee by any chance <laughs> occasionally do you think coffee is a drug it is but you know what isn't a drug in the sense that everything is a drug but coffee is a lower level drug which has more advantages than disadvantages in my opinion did you notice that there's more people doing these like coffee fasting nowadays what's a coffee fast or they just cut out coffee uh, so i've noticed um as of late more people talking about uh going completely sober with alcohol where um there's a phrase for it it's called teetotaler where they yeah. don't drink at all and then you know they document their journey uh they bring it up um now in addition to that as a late i've been noticing more people that are like i'm also getting rid of coffee as well uh, and they're talking about the withdrawals that they have in the beginning stages like they're getting migraines it's hurting them um it's almost as though that they're weaning themselves off of a drug it depends on how much coffee they were drinking in the sense that if someone is drinking 3 cups a day and they go to zero then yeah they're going to have problems but if someone is drinking say one cup a day it's going to be much less of an issue mm mm-hmm. you ever tried caffeine pills no i have not so for me man i don't really like the taste of coffee too much so in walmart they sell uh caffeine pills and i used to try that and nowadays i'm thinking about picking it up again so it's like this tablet that's just caffeine and you could break it into four pieces and take it and it allows you to skip uh, like the whole coffee drinking experience and get straight uh, to the caffeine yeah i'm not sure what i feel about that in the sense that you know caffeine like how much is the dosage first of all so if you, one pill is equal to one cup or what have you i so, think you should pair it up with l theanine it takes care of the jitters mm mm-hmm. that's the that's the thing when you drink too much coffee it's at a point where it's just like it's giving you that adrenaline it's making your heart beat fast but you still feel sleepy at the same time so my sweet spot is 100 uh, milligrams of caffeine and not more than that throughout the day how much caffeine is there in a normal cup of coffee i think it's like 120 are you sure maybe, i think it's like may- 40 maybe like 40 you may be right you you're talking about like the styrofoam cups right i don't know let me check uh caffeine in cup of coffee it says 72140 mg yeah then 100 grams you should be fine you know when you said a tablet i figured oh no i when i see caffeine in cup of coffee i see 40 mg caffeine in 100 grams of coffee. Mm. Liquid coffee not like the powder coffee. So Is that what you do? Is it, you just drink it in a cup? Yeah, I drink it in a cup. When I drink it, I drink it like twice a month or something. When I haven't gotten enough sleep, but I still have like a bunch of work I want to do. D- do you ever drink coffee right before a uh, lifting session? Yeah, I do that at like So if I have like a big session and I'm not feeling good enough to do it, I'll have like a cup of coffee and that's like a pre-workout, right? In fact, uh-huh. most pre-workouts are just caffeine. Right. 
that's what uh, did, you don't take C4 or anything like that the C4 pre-workout I have never even heard of it from what I am aware C4 is an explosive well that I think that's the marketing regarding the C4 workout I think it's called like let me see if they have a branding associated with that uh that's the pre-workout that I used to take here let me send you a link real quick From what I understand the active ingredient in most pre-workouts is the caffeine mm-hmm. and you know the carbs with supplement companies uh, I had a buddy that was starting a supplement company and he was doing um he was selling keto products and he was telling me like the behind the scenes regarding how to set up a supplement company and mm-hmm. he was talking about like the marketing of Because you know when you're starting one of these companies, it's smart to understand the history regarding it. Most supplements out there, would you say they're even needed? I mean, what are like the 100% needed supplements in order to build a bigger body or better body? I would say a protein shake, but there's so many pills that's coming out nowadays. I wonder how much of it's actually needed and how much of it is the um, marketing side of it. Because you well, don't technically don't need pre-workout. I think if your question is what is 100% needed, nothing. Like you can get all your nutrition from, you know, healthy food. But, you know, like in the real world, <laughs> <laughs> you need whey protein. And creatine definitely helps. Creatine monohydrate. You, you take uh, creatine? Yeah, I take creatine every day, 5 grams. Then we need, like I take fish oil, cod liver oil. that's really good for you then i take a multivitamin then let me see my drawer i'll take some magnesium every once in a while like the spray but i don't really like magnesium it kind of gives me nightmares for some reason oh actually gives you nightmares yeah it actually gives me nightmares not all the time but every once in a while i'll put magnesium and i'll get a nightmare so i stop taking magnesium and then i never get nightmares but if i take magnesium that's like a 50% chance So magnesium is something I try to avoid taking like as the spray maybe something is up with that particular spray you know you never know then I take D3 5000 IU every day Well that's all Don't you get tired of taking all that in a day I Or is this something that's just ingrained in your lifestyle Are you it's you take it all at once Yeah I don't I'm lazy <laughs> In the morning after eating I don't know man whenever I take too much stuff like don't you feel bloated or tired or does it actually give you more energy I don't notice anything Hold on let's go back to the nightmare thing so how correlated do you think magnesium is with the nightmares that you're getting I don't know how correlated it is but for me personally if I take it then there's a 50% chance I'll get it or not get it but if I don't take it I never get it Mm-hmm. Like the first time I had a nightmare was after taking magnesium. Do you recall the nightmare? Yeah, not really. You know, I've forgotten now because I haven't <laughs> taken magnesium in a while <laughs> because of this bullshit. But yeah, are you someone who recalls your dreams? Like, you ever heard of the thing called lucid dreaming? Okay, so about that, I have something like this is crazy. Okay, but. I remember back in 2011 or 12 watching a movie called Inception. 
I don't know, some sometime back in 2012 or 13, some some you know, back in those days. I love that movie. Yes. Yeah, and the movie is about getting inside people's dreams, right? Mm. And I think some in the movie they say that if you write down your dreams after waking up, you'll have better memory of those dreams, right? Right. So I tried do, doing that. I had a dream journal and I would write down my dreams. And the thing works. You can remember your dreams much better. Like you can actually remember most of your dreams. The issue is that it becomes hard to tell what is a dream and what was reality. Like, did I have this conversation with Arman or not? Was it a real conversation or did I have it in a dream? You know, mm-hmm. it kind of like starts messing with your sense of reality. So I had to stop doing that and I had to actually try to make sure I don't remember the dreams because then I there becomes harder to tell what part was real and what part actually happened in a dream. But of course, this was back in 2014, 15-ish, 2013-ish, I think. So yeah, back in the day. So when you woke up, it was like so realistic where you're just like, wait, am I still dreaming right now? Did you by any chance try pinching yourself? No, so it wasn't immediately when I woke up, okay? So when I woke up, I would write down the dream, but say one month from now, I'm trying to recall if a conversation happened or not. I can't remember correctly whether it was a real conversation or was it like a dream. Mm -hmm. So it has this tendency of messing up your sense of reality. I don't recommend trying to remember your dreams. Yeah, It it blurs the lines of reality. Yeah, it, it, it was a crazy feeling. I felt like I was going insane. Really? I wonder yeah. if I wonder if actors that's one of the reasons why actors often struggle with alcoholism and a lot of them commit suicide is because they're playing the character so much. At times they're like, wait a minute, am I still in this zone or am I off this zone? Because I used to work with this upcoming actor, Harsh. Mm-hmm. Um and we worked in like a 7-Eleven together. And this guy. <laughs> he, yeah, when you were saying I used to work with that, I thought it was going to be something like, yeah, I help him with the public presentation and things like that. <laughs> no, so this was. You know, I'm, what? A, I'm a speech coach. I, I help him like give better speeches, act better. And you're like, <laughs> I was working with him at a 7-Eleven. <laughs> Maybe if I find him nowadays, this was 11 years ago. So I'm over here working with this guy and this guy would randomly, um, he was a white guy just to paint the picture, white guy, uh, very geeky looking. And if people watch Game of Thrones, he looks just like Joffrey from Game of Thrones. So you guys will know who I'm talking about. And randomly, Harsh, he would just get into these different zones where he was talking in a different way. His mannerisms changed. His body language changed. And I just remember being scared to work with him. Because when I worked in 7-Eleven, uh, it was the one right across from prison. Uh, so there was like a bunch of these people getting straight out of jail, asking to use our phones. And here I am working late at night with this weird guy. And he's over here showing me a lot of his short films that he worked in. And the character that he's playing in these short films is how he's often acting in 7-Eleven. It's like he didn't know when to uh, like be a worker, be himself, and when he was being um, in film. So it's like, you know what you're describing with your reality blurring when you're remembering mm-hmm. your dreams a lot? It was happening with him. Uh, as, 
but in the acting context. Interesting. I don't and think I, there are many actors who go through this though. Like otherwise it would be more well known. Mhm. Well, that's what remember like we were talking about the Will Smith slap. The way that he got up and like like the dramatic way that he did it, I feel like that was a guy that just lost control of like what reality was for a second. People's egos and emotions tend to do that. Although I still believe that it was staged just for the views, you know. Because who is that stupid? Like, I mean, I know he's a clown, but even clowns know that this might land him in jail. Oh, did you see uh, Dave Chappelle got uh, tackled recently? I saw a clip on. Twitter with the guy with his arms and everything broken being taken to the hospital. Mm-hmm. You think that was real fake? That was probably real. Like That was real. And I'm concluding that on the fact that the guy got his arms and legs broken. Right. What, what do you think the future of comedy is, Harsh? Especially in this culture that we're living in. Uh, do you think... I mean, we could already agree that people are more sensitive than ever. I mean, what do you think is going to be uh, the environment for comedians? Do you see more of them getting attacked like this when they're hurting audience members' feelings? It depends in the sense that I think that it's going to continue for a while. I don't want to make a prediction on an industry I don't understand at all, right? I'm not someone who watches comedy or any TV, but... Judging by how society is, we might see them be cancelled from different places like Netflix and whatever, wherever. Um, yeah, we might have a non-comedians in the future. We never know. I do think that these guys will have to have more security. Because at the end of the day, leftism, transgenderism, all of these are religions. And, you know, religious people tend to be very fanatic. And that's what's going on here. Like, the, you know, when when I think um, Dave Chappelle got attacked because he was insulting transgenderism, right? So here, transgenderism is like their prophet of this religion of you know leftism, what have you, and you insult the you know the the main idea of the religion, one of the main ideas, and then the followers of this religion are going to attack you. So I think it's a form of fanaticism where the the guys who are promoting transgenderism, leftism, etc. They, I don't know, maybe they consider themselves to be transgender or maybe it's like their prophet ideology type thing. And they're being insulted. Like they, they feel insulted and they, they, they are, you know, attacking them. The followers are, you know, brainwashed and, you know, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know how in Soviet Russia, a comedian couldn't like make fun of Stalin? Right. It's a little like that. So you think, you think there's a risk that that's what we're headed towards? In the US, for sure. I don't think we're headed towards that. We're already here. What's the comedy culture like in India? Don't know, don't care. <laughs> Well, I'm not l- even sure me... if we have comedy culture here. 
do we? Let me let me rephrase the question. Uh, what about attacking politicians or leaders? Is there any stories of people getting silenced um, with that? Oh, definitely. So India is not like the US in that sense where, you know, you can safely attack someone in, someone who has significant amounts of power, right? You might get killed, kidnapped, and you never know what's going to happen to you. Like, it's a risky thing to do. So it depends on whom you're criticizing and where you're located in the sense that if you're located in the state where this guy is in power and you're public, publicly criticizing him and hurting him, then yeah, you should have, you have reason to worry. But if you are located in a state where this guy is not in power, okay, then you have very little to be concerned about. You can openly do whatever you want. So it depends on your location where this guy has power at and how much you're hurting him, etc. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, it's not like the US where you can like, you know, there were people who were taking Trump's head and you know, chopping it off and things like that. Like, you know, tricking Trump dolls and killing him. You can't do that in India. Oh, okay. So that's... Yeah, it's somewhere between, like... It's not completely free, but it's not unfree either. It's in the middle. Right. That's But I don't think even in the West, it's completely free, right? So we had this protest in Canada, which was brutally suppressed by the current regime in Canada. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing with U.S. They're not going to be anything. There's rarely going to be any outright display of violence. That may happen behind the scenes. But what's outright is just killing them off in the algorithm or finding a way to demonetize them, uh, doing the subtle stuff to scare them, to be like, hey, stop talking about this. Otherwise, it's going to get worse for you. Oh, that is happening for sure, right? But I don't think the U.S. is as... I mean, Epstein killed himself, right? Are we allowed to talk about that? Technically. I mean, I'm putting air quotes. <laughs> uh, nothing came off you know, his trial. There were no convictions, nothing. So it's not like they won't kill you in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> it's spooky because... And nowadays, there's, uh, you know, there's Twitter, there's these oh, different no, I'm platforms. I'm my suicide story right now. <laughs> <laughs> Life math money has disappeared. <laughs> Do you think more people who talk about politics are just going to become anonymous in the future? It depends on how far it gets. If we get to the territory of civil wars where not being on the right side might get you killed, then yes. Even with being anonymous, Harsh, I mean, you have to know technology very well to be anonymous. Like, you got to yeah. know the decryption servers and all of that. It's not just like you don't put your face up there and you call it a day and like, no one's going to find me now. I'm pretty sure they could still find you. I think I mean, a how- government who is sufficiently motivated will find most people. However, someone who is technically skilled can find a way to not be found. But yeah, that is an option only limited to people who are technically skilled. But I do think that in the future, more and more people are going to be technically skilled. Like the current generation of kids, they're using computers ever since they're like six months old. Like, you know what mothers are doing now, right? Now, right? They give the kid like a phone and then they say, okay, go play with your phone and stop bothering me. And the mom is doing her thing. Like, this is like 
a babysitter in a way. So these mm-hmm. children are growing up with computers and phones. So they know how the thing is going to work. So in their era, like in maybe 10 years from now, these guys are going to know how to be anon. You're right. But if they know how to be anon because they're technically skilled, don't you think other kids their age who are equally technically skilled can uncover how they're an anon? I think most people who get their anonymity uncovered, it happens because they make mistakes. You know, like using the same phone number for your anon profile and for your non-anon profiles, etc. Or same email IDs. Like, let's take the guy who was running Silk Road. He got busted because he advertised the Silk Road on an old comment section using his personal email ID. That's how he got found. His encryption technologies didn't fail him, but he got found because he made like a stupid mistake. There's a very so, good book on this thing. Um, it's called The American Kingpin. It's a very, very good book. And it'll detail you the entire story of how this guy was uncovered. Like this guy was running like an entire marketplace where you can buy any drug on the net. And, you know, it was very, very popular, the Silk Road. And this guy was caught because he left a comment using his personal ID promoting the Silk Road. No way. Yeah, his name is Ross Albridge. Where does someone even learn, like begin to learn about, okay, I want to talk about controversial topics. I want to be anonymous. And I don't know much about technology. Do you have any recommendations on how they can learn? Or is it just... You got to know it. Observe what other anonymous people are doing and then Google the right things. Okay. Like a lot of it just comes down to being able to Google properly. The, there's that, this, that go because you want to be more anonymous. So. Yeah. Uh, there's this guy named Kevin Durant. Have you ever heard of him? I've heard the name, but I can't place him in my head. Okay. Well, he's a basketball player and he's pretty good, but he's highly sensitive and normally, uh, people are just talking trash about him because, you know, he's a big superstar. And whenever you're big, people are going to talk trash about you. So this uh, dummy, uh, he created a burner account where he defends himself through this burner account. And there was this one time he slipped up and he uh, he tweeted from his real account. And that's when someone's like, wait a minute, uh, why did he type that from his account like that? And then they started to do the whole uh, the search <laughs> and they were able to find his uh, that he had a burner account this whole time um so i wonder how like often these little silly mistakes expose you it's best if you're going to do the anon thing to have a separate machine for your anon and have a separate machine for your personal profile but yeah it's about being aware and not making these mistakes What's your recommendation for that? Like in the future, do you think there or not recommendation prediction? Do you think more people are going to adopt the Anon lifestyle? It only makes sense for more people to do it in the sense that if, for example, I don't know if you're working right now or not, but let's say that if you're if you have a job and you also do run a podcast, then you have to watch what you say because you might get fired from your job for something you say on your podcast because, you know. All these mobs are like, they follow their religion and you say something wrong about their religion. Like you say transgenderism is not the right thing. You get basically canceled, right, in real life. So there are definitely advantages to being anon. 
it's the only way you can say certain things and not say certain things so yeah i think there will be more people who are intelligent who will be anon i wonder if there's going to be um anon comedians um i want you never heard, have you ever heard of the show called black mirror i have I, it's a movie or a show it's I, a I show know, all i know is that there's like a thing in this where it wipes your memory with a flashlight um you may be talking about a certain episode uh but basically black mirror is a tv series on netflix and none of the episodes are connected with each other so you could just watch one of the episodes and you don't have to fear missing the episodes from before and the whole concept of the show is um futuristic uh, but it has a dark twist to it of what happens when we have too much access to the technology that we want and normally there's like this very dark um twist that happens at the end of the episodes and one of the episodes uh, i think it was called um waldo and basically there's this uh, failed writer or failed comedian uh, who couldn't never make it so what he does is he's the voice for this cartoon named waldo and at first you know he's over here talking about political issues and cracking some jokes right waldo's this bear that he's the voice for mm-hmm. later on people are like you know we really like it when waldo runs for um or we really like it when waldo talks about politics you should talk more about politics so this guy talks more about politics as more time is going on by uh there are people that are like if waldo ran for office i'd vote for him so the network producer is like hey waldo should run for office uh, just for you know marketing sake no one's really going to vote for him and as the video uh like the episode is progressing what's happening is more and more people are like um we're going to vote for waldo because he's real he's completely different from a lot of these fake politicians and you know what they were doing harsh they were mm-hmm. sort of mocking the whole trump um election because this was around the same time but they took it even one level further uh, with an actual cartoon uh, who was running for office and i mean it was <laughs> it was a it was a crazy episode and i'm thinking i wonder if that could actually happen you check out this link that i just sent you this is what waldo looks like One sec, let me see. With the blue one in the back? Yeah. Huh, interesting. So he was like this like teddy bear, I guess, and he like curse out the politicians. I uh, he talk about why he's real, uh even though he's technically a cartoon versus these uh politicians who read off scripts and it was getting people riled up they were like yeah waldo is real even though he's a cartoon he tells it like it is uh, versus these uh suits who are definitely bought and i wonder if this could be something that happens in the future or there's a cartoon uh, that speaks a lot of truths of and the comedian doesn't want to show his face because he doesn't want to get in trouble but he's still speaking a lot of truths through the vehicle of this cartoon anonymous account whatever i think that's the future yes at some level it's it's currently happening in many ways where you have a lot of these blockchain technologies that are being headed by people who are anon so people who are anon are actually running companies right now like the yeah. world's 
yeah, the the most influential founder of today, like this era, is anonymous. He goes by Satoshi Nakamoto, but we don't know who he is. There were some rumors that that's Elon Musk. Uh, he he dispelled the rumors. Do you think it could be someone big? I doubt it. It could be, but I don't know. I think the most likely person, in my opinion, is Halfany, but he's dead. Mm. You wrote this tweet a while back where Charlie Munger was a big fan of Bitcoin, and you thought he hurt his legacy for um, dissing Bitcoin so much. Uh, do you wanna? Do you have any updated opinions on that? Yeah. So I think. To some extent, I was being a bit dramatic. And, you know, I, I admire Charlie Munger, right? So, And him dissing Bitcoin kind of like... Like when I said like he ruined his legacy, like he hurt his legacy here, I believe it in the sense that, you know, in the future when people discuss Charlie Munger, they're going to say he was right about a lot of things, but even he wasn't right about everything because he got this important change wrong right mm -hmm. and maybe in the future it might be he might be known for getting this wrong like when people think of ibm back in the day there are popular quotes like the guy from ibm said why do regular people need a computer and that's what he's known for so i think there's a chance that charlie munger might actually end <laughs> up being known for losing bitcoin so in that sense, I do think he has hurt his legacy. On the other hand, I feel like I think I was being a bit in the moment. And I just said that because I admire this guy and this guy is like clearly saying something that is wrong. Because his background is that he doesn't even use computers. Like he doesn't know how to turn a computer on and use it. And he's commenting on Bitcoin. Does that make sense? Do you think he got emotional? I don't know. I think he just misunderstands it's, misunderstands it's fundamentally. Or the fact that he's so entrenched in the fiat world that it is not good for him to promote crypto for his own wealth. So it could be either of the two. In either mm. case, I do think it has hurt his memory in the future. For future generations, when Bitcoin is going to dominate the financial system, the people of the future might look back and think of Charlie Munger as a guy who got crypto wrong. And that might be the only thing they know about him. Isn't that crazy? Because, I mean, you, you've followed his career for the most part. You've read his books. You've stayed updated with him. But there's that one line that could alter his legacy for so many of the younger generation. For sure, man. There is like There are certain things which kind of like catch on to you. And for like being the one of the best investors in the world, which he is, to make a mistake like that, I think is going to be talked about forever. You know, as long when people mention him, yeah, he was a great guy, but he had this one fatal mistake. Mm -hmm. But then again, he's very old. He can't use a computer. So it's hard to expect him to think otherwise. That's what's always made me interested about history. Because when the general public is learning about history, they're getting these punchlines. We're not necessarily hearing about an entire person's career. We're hearing the most memorable part of their career. 
And we're getting little pockets of information besides that. So I wonder how much of history is like that, where uh, someone that we're like, ah, oh, man, this guy gives us bad vibes was actually for the most part, like 95% of his career, uh, a stand-up individual. But 5% of his career, he made such a strong mistake that that's what he became known for. Well, I'll tell you what, okay? With history, especially like the older history you go to, we only have what was written, okay? We don't know if it's accurate or not. There's no way to tell. All we can do is see what part matches, okay? We might compare five different historians and then see, okay, yeah, it, it kind of like, they all agree on something, so this must be true. But yeah, everything that we know about history is just a bunch of written down records. So if someone was alive back in the day and I said, like if I was alive back in, say, 2000 BC and I wrote a book and the book survived to this time and no one else wrote a book, you know, there are no competing records, mm -hmm. then what I wrote might like be interpreted as true. Yeah. So if I wrote back, th back then that, yeah, okay, I have a friend called Arman. Arman is nine feet tall and is, can lift like 500 kilograms on one hand. And... You know, maybe I write three, four books like that, and then it might be true. Like, maybe there was a different species of human being. We don't know. Right. I mean, when you break it down like that, a lot of history is just gossip. A lot of his history is a set of lies agreed upon. This is a quote from Napoleon. Mm. And let me give you one more perspective. By the way, the what I said isn't like completely accurate because we also try to correct these records by architectural findings. You find the bones and everything. So the previous one might be, you know, proven false, but a lot of things are harder to prove false. For example, I might say, okay, the king is a terrorist, like he kills all these people and he's an evil guy. But even though the king is really good, I wrote the book, my book survived. <laughs> <laughs> so I get you to ever, tell the tale. You ever heard of Richard Nixon, an American president? He's the guy, it's a 1971 guy, right? Who change the dollar from being convertible in gold to not being convertible in gold right so dollars are no longer backed by gold so that's yeah, one he, thing uh, he was known for and another thing he was known for was like this big scandal um i think it was called watergate or something and those pretty much um were, were pockets of his legacy but people who apparently had nixon as a president they said that he also had a lot of good as well that no one's gonna remember like, apparently, he was pretty good with a global politics. Not politics in the U.S., but globally, he was pretty stand-up. Um, and there's a lot of these interviews you'll see with him where he's very well-spoken and he's crystal clear. But when you hear of Richard Nixon, you think of someone that's disgraced, uh, that uh, he was impeached as well. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so nowadays when, like, my generation hears of him, when I hear Nixon, I'm just like, oh, whoa, that's bad. Uh, but I wonder, those people who had him as a president, what their perspective is. I mean, the guy got elected, so, you know, <laughs> at least yeah. the majority liked him. But yeah, that's how things go. And there's also one other thing, Arman, where the people who are good, they're also, like, in history, they're artificially good in many ways because... Arman, if I had to write a book on you, or let's say you write your own book, what, like, in your own, like, you know, I bet there are things in your life you have done that you don't want to be written about. So would you write that in your autobiography? No. No. Likewise, if I was a, I was your biographer, would you tell me why the things that you don't want in the histories about <laughs> you? 
Nah. So all of this stuff is, you know, history is a bunch of books and some evidence passed down to us over time. And a lot of it is just opinion or outright lies. And a lot of it is true as well. A lot of it is, well, for example, I'll tell you what, let's say that you remember like, you know, everyone in history writes that this king makes this mistake. Okay. So you might assume that he was evil, but what if he was just drunk? Drunk? Yeah. Let's say that there's a king who Mm -hmm. did something really bad and is known for doing that bad thing and is thought of as an evil person. Right. But what if he was like a great king and that particular day he was just drunk? Mm. So I know what you mean. Yeah. We lack all these contexts like that piece of evidence changes entirely. Like it changes his, our perception of this guy and it changes a lot of things. So yeah, we definitely, history is a set of lies agreed upon in many ways. There's also the fact that not everyone was writing history in the sense that why are certain people thought of as savages and certain people civilized? And I think a lot of it is because the guys who were savages were not writing. <laughs> so the only opinions we have are from the guys who were like fighting these guys. So, you know, like if you take the Germanic tribes versus Rome, the Germanic tribes are not like writing down their history, right? They were not telling us where they came from. They were not passing on books. And they were at war with Rome. So the Romans were writing like these guys are savages, etc., etc. And those are the only records we have. So these guys, like these poor people, like we only get the perspective written by their enemies. And I'll give you like more examples of this. For example, like Indian history, a lot of it, the parts that British people wrote, they like, they were extremely biased. Okay. A lot of the parts that they wrote make zero sense. For example, they made up a lot of stuff. Like they made up a thing called Sati where, you know, they say that the woman is forced to be killed when her husband dies. When in reality, she was never forced. In fact, people would try to convince her not to commit suicide after the, de- after the death of her husband. So the British or whoever wrote these histories, what they were trying to do is they were trying to convince the people back home to send you know, Christian missionaries here in India because they were trying to portray this image that Indians are savages. Look what you know barbaric shit they're doing here. Mm-hmm. And it is our like, duty to give them Christianity. When in reality, they were lying. Like that was false history, right? That's that's false being falseness being propagated. Like in India, people were not killing women after their husband's side. That was not a thing. That was maybe an isolated incident here and there. And that was called Sadi, but it wasn't like compulsory. And like there are various accounts of different travelers writing that, yeah, like, you know, the main concept is that they would try to convince a woman to not die, like to not kill herself, etc. So, but the missionaries, they did the opposite. They wrote something different to convince people in their home countries to get more missionaries here so that they can convert more people to Christianity. So, you know, there are different objectives of writing history. For example, why is Alexander great? Okay. Back in his home country, Alexander was not thought of as great. He was thought of as a tyrant. Like this guy is going around the world, killing people just to like, you know, be well known. Right. Conquering stuff. Yeah, yeah, he was he was a tyrant. Like, he was thought of as a tyrant, but the people who were following him wrote books saying that Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great, and that's why he's Alexander the Great, and not Alexander the terrorist. Right, and that's his brand. 
And, and back to one of the examples. <laughs> What's the difference between Alexander and ISIS? Hmm. I actually don't know much about Alexander other than Alexander the Great. Exactly. It's a, it's just a brand, but he was doing pretty much the same thing. Like he was killing people for no reason. He was capturing, burning the villages, capturing the territory, just to be known more. And what if you actually want to know what happened? It's like if you're trying to get like those sources, those sources in itself are. You got to find what's the right sources, what's not, and everything's just imbued with what their perception was. It doesn't mean it's reality. It's just what their perception of what happened was. And another example, based off of what you were saying, um, in the 50s, there was this guy named Mahara Rishi Mahesh Yogi. You may have heard of him. He, he came to the US and he was introducing this thing called transcendental meditation. And there were uh, pockets of people that liked it. They understood the purpose of meditation and they were enjoying it. But he was met with uh, a lot of criticism. I recall like some of the uh, documentaries you could watch on YouTube nowadays, they're saying that you know he was like a cult leader, he was uh, satanic, that meditation is uh, for the devil. And they were creating these narratives, but they were viewing it from the Western lens and they couldn't quite understand the concept of meditation. So they were viewing this guy as like a villain. Have you have you heard of this guy before, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi? I have never heard of him. Yeah, so I mean, for the most part, just long story short, this is when meditation was first becoming popularized in the West in the fifties, and you know, nowadays you and me, when we hear about meditation, we're like, how can anyone possibly say something negative about that? But in the fifties, it was met with a lot of criticism. Interesting. What's your experience with meditation? So because you know it's like a it's a part of a foreign culture, right? So the locals will resist it. Mm-hmm. What's your experience with meditation? Like, have you ever had a bad experience? I have never had a bad experience with meditation. It works. I do it every single day, and it's one of the best return on investment activities out there in the world. I don't think that what is. I can't think of any single reason why someone would not meditate. Everyone should be meditating at least 20 minutes a day. So some of the criticism, Harsh, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, is from people that normally think negative thoughts. And when they're just closing their eyes and meditating, they're making eye contact with those negative thoughts. And they say that it makes them even more stressed. So they don't have a beneficial feeling from meditation from their lens. And I would say that's it's a lot like deadlifting, where I'm sure anyone that's deadlifted before uh, felt uh, back pains uh, because they probably had uh, some form that they could have fixed. It's the same thing with meditation, where when you're thinking like, oh, okay, I could just pick it up willy-nilly and I'm going to do it for one hour the first time, you didn't warm up. There's a lot of these micro muscles that you need to warm up with the mind. Uh, so how would you recommend someone get started? My personal philosophy is just start off incrementally and gradually build from that. I will only say that if you are thinking while you're meditating, be it positive thoughts or negative thoughts, you're not meditating. So you try to shut off your mind? 
I don't try to shut off my mind. It shuts off on its own. Hmm. Like you just observe what's going on, but you don't like give it attention, and eventually it'll stop producing as much noise. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's just that simple. Sit on your bed wherever. If you take some back support, if you like, but keep your back straight. Try to not focus on any thought. Like thoughts will come and go, but let them come and go. But don't focus on any single one of them, and that's really it. Like that's how meditation works. Right. Is that common? Uh, where you're from? Like, do most of the people you know like meditate? Like they go to the gym. In India, I would say one in every three hundred people meditate regularly. Meditation was dis or introduced by the Indian culture. Right. Yeah, but most Indians don't really follow Indian culture, or they don't do anything that's advantageous in Indian culture. <laughs> they have all the bad parts of the West and all the bad parts of the East, but things <laughs> that, that take effort, like meditation, exercise, they don't do. Right. So if you tell someone like in India who's like, you know, not fit, you tell them like you should lift more, he'll say, "Yeah, lifting is bullshit. I should do yoga or something." Okay, like some inversion of exercise. But then they won't do that either. So the reason they don't come to the gym is because they want to do something Indian, but they're not doing that thing anyway. What do you say to those people that are like, "The gym is my meditation"? Um, do you think wrong. that's enough? They're or they're wrong. wrong? Like that's it. Like you know, the gym is a meditation. Is if you think that and you haven't really tried like meditation like you're wrong right. like it, you you might say something you might be saying something that's cool and hip and you know you know catchy and sounds good to say and makes you feel like yeah you're the shit but you're wrong so you're saying like you need to do both you can't just pick and choose Meditation is meditation. Working out in the gym is working out. They both have interlinked advantages. Where being in the gym it will also make your brain stronger. But it's like you know how riding a bike will help you with the deadlift. Initially, maybe, but it's not that directly linked, right? If you want to meditate, meditate. Yes, but yeah. I think the- the- I think if they're trying to convey the idea that the gym is a time where they're alone, they can think and process their emotions, for sure. But if they're saying that working out has the exact same benefits as meditation, they're wrong. This actually ties into a tweet that you wrote recently. Um, men don't find meaning. Men build things. Most will not understand. Um you want to explain that tweet because it's it's two lines and it seems pretty profound. You know how nowadays people try to find themselves, especially women, where they try to like travel as much as they can and look around the world, have you ride like five thousand dicks and try <laughs> to find themselves. That doesn't work. So when people say they want to find themselves, what they're basically saying is that they want to experience more emotions. Mm. 
that's what they're trying to do like when this when someone says i want to find myself what they are saying especially if this person is a female they're saying that i want to experience more profound emotions and currently i'm not experiencing them so you that is not something that actually works right your emotions are not something that are tangible you can experience a lot of emotions for a week and then next week you'll be very sorted so you can't find yourself like that doesn't work you only you can only build things you can only build your body build a business build a house build a family those are the things that last the things that last are what make you right you can only build things you cannot find yourself because that won't last you can feel all the emotions today and next week you'll be back to no emotions unless you're chasing them again and again right like why do all these people who want to find themselves keep traveling to different places but never find themselves like how come none of you did find yourself like you went to china you went to europe you backpacked around here and there you went to this cave where were you like why didn't you find yourself like we didn't work right all right because you can't like this this is a false path it doesn't work do you think that's one of the reasons for depression or sadness because they're pursuing the wrong strategy i think anyone especially a guy if he is not building things he is going to feel depressed sad whatever empty inside because the key to male sanity is building things we are builders we were supposed to make things we were supposed to build our bodies we were supposed to build businesses we were supposed to build our tribe we were supposed to build our house our family we are not supposed to spend our entire life gossiping around watching sitcoms and what have you right i was having this discussion with a friend recently where we were talking about the whole field of self improvement and just improving as a person and you know standing from the outside harsh it's something that looks easy you're like okay yeah, yeah. i mean they just go to the gym more uh, read some books eat healthy etc but it's not easy when you're doing it it's like you're leveling up one part of your life then you're seeing oh whoa there's some holes here i got to link up this part with the part that i'm improving and that's what connects with the whole builders mentality and i could automatically sense it right when i'm speaking to someone i could tell like this guy's building something in his life versus this guy's not and i believe that's what the whole phrase real recognize real means it's this guy is a builder in his industry and this guy is just a worker for the builder where would you recommend men get started in the building process um, would you just say it's the body first and then you expand from there yeah it's the body first because that's the place which is guaranteed in the sense that if you're someone who has no money no body no life well the place you start is your body because that has more of a formula you know you go to the gym you eat well you lift well and it's going to work like there are no two ways about it everything else has some trial and error involved and takes more time and effort but your body starts producing results right away what about you arman what are your thoughts on this so for me i'm it's a toss up uh, body or business i would say Both. body for the main reason that the better your body is the more energy that you have the more energy that you have 
the clearer that you can think in order to make strategic business decisions. Because that's all business is. It's a game of making strategic decisions and having the energy to uh, be in it for the long run. Um, I'm reading this great book right now, Harsh, called um, Start Small, Finish Big. Uh, it's by the uh, founder of Subway. And he was talking mm-hmm. about how he started small. Initially, he was just working for pennies. And he shares a lot of stories in that book about people who was initially working for pennies. They learned how to you know, work on the micro stuff, build work ethic, become tough. And then from there, they were able to just keep growing the pennies to dollars, dollars to $10. And a lot of the those individuals in the book became billionaires with that simple mindset. And it's the same thing with building the body. You start off light, you just keep building it, and it starts to spill over to other parts of your life. A lot of it is momentum, isn't it? Yeah. Where, you know, if you're winning in one area of life, you can take the momentum and try to win on other areas of life. Yeah. I, I do want to bring up this book again because I wanted to ask you something. Um, one thing that I get annoyed with every now and then is whenever there's this stigma regarding entrepreneurs, like, oh, well, this guy, he got lucky. Uh, well, uh, it's because he's privileged. Not everyone can do that. As I'm reading this book, so many of these guys started a business with $1,000 or less. And it's getting me to think in a different way because Subway was started by a guy that really had no business starting a business in the first place. He doesn't have a degree or any credentials or anything. Uh, He just had heart and he was persistent for a long, long time. Uh, The book's name is Start Small, Finish Big. How much in terms of business do you think it's about um, the credentials part versus just having the heart? I think the credentials help, but the heart is necessary in the sense that if you don't have the right mindset, then even if you have the credentials, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. So I think that at the end of the day, it comes down to mindset. Most Big businesses were started by random people. They were not started by aristocrats. And, you know, if your argument is that I can't do this because I lack this resource, which this guy has, well, I'm going to guarantee you that you're going to fail at life. With that mindset, you're done. Because you have a scarcity mindset at that point. You will never have everything ready for you. And even if everything was ready, with your mindset, you're going to miss the opportunity. And then you'll blame something else. So yeah, the concept that, you know, these guys are all privileged is bullshit. Most of these are random people. They did their thing. They had a good mindset. They built things. Sometimes they get lucky too. But yeah, with, you know, why why aren't you getting lucky? Like, why aren't you building anything? I mean, yeah. if you're so smart. I mean, it all comes down to... Successful? Right. It's all, it comes down to some movement because luck doesn't come towards you if you're just in your room all day. I mean, most of these entrepreneurs in this book, and more specifically, Harsh, a concept that he brings up is called micro-entrepreneurs. And they're tiny entrepreneurs, not like these guys that are running like businesses with thousands of people. Uh, but he keeps introducing uh, micro-entrepreneurs, micro-lenders, micro-economies. And he tries to get the reader to think in terms of micro. And it's a 
a different way in order to perceive business. Because with business, traditionally, I'm thinking about the big picture stuff. Uh, but he's trying to get you to focus on the little things. And you know, I didn't know that there were more subways around the planet than McDonald's. Did you know know that? Yeah, I know that. You knew that? Yeah, I watched a video on Subway, actually. It's very popular on YouTube. And I think Subway is like kind of dying in that sense. The reason there are more Subways and McDonald's is that it's much easier to get a Subway franchise. It's much cheaper, it's much right? Cheaper, yeah. Much cheaper and much easier. Where to get a McDonald's franchise, you need to have you need to show them that you have a lot of experience and what have you. And you need to pay them a lot of money. But with Subway, it's much easier. And Subway doesn't have these limits of area. For McDonald's, like if you have a McDonald's here, then I think there's like they have this rule where you can't start a new McDonald's right next to it. But Subway doesn't have such a rule. Or their limits are much less binding or restrictive. So they have far more opener restaurants. That's a big one. Because if you walk down this one part in, um, in New York, let's say you walk down the road for 12 minutes. In those 12 minutes, apparently you'll see eight subways. So they're pretty much just cannibalizing one another. Yeah, I mean, if you have like subways right next to each other, you haven't like achieved anything, right? <laughs> it's like me saying that, you know, me putting up a wall next to my house, okay, in my house and splitting my house in two and then saying I have two houses now. Right. Where do you see the, the future of Subway? Because it's one of those franchises that I, I see being universal. Like, I, I know people in India that love it. I know people in South America that love it, U.S. that love it. So I'm surprised to see its lack of popularity as of late. So the reason Subway is not as popular as it used to be is because, you know, the business has more competition now. More and more companies are doing this whole submarine sandwich thing and they're doing it better than Subway where their ingredients are fresher, tastes better, etc. I used to think Subway is healthy, but I was wrong. Because when I see their ingredients now, their bread has vegetable oil and sugar and all of their dressings have a ton of oil in it. So Subway is not healthy. It just feels healthy to the, you know, to the <laughs> eye. It's not actually healthy. <laughs> Whenever I someone think more th people will catch on to that. Whenever someone thinks something's healthy, they begin to overdo it. I mean, I think I told you, like when I used to work there, uh, these guys would come in with the mentality that is healthy. So they're thinking, I'll just get a lot of everything because it will it just means it's even healthier. So they'll be like, no, son, give me more oil. No, son, give me more mayo, even more. Add more bacon on top of that. And I'm looking at the sub and I'm like, this is not healthy anymore. You could structure it in certain ways, Harsh, to make it healthy. Like if you, I, I recommend you ditch the bread completely and ask for the pita maybe some turkey, some chicken and vegetables. You can make it healthy, but for I the mean, most part... I mean, if you part, have a salad, then it's healthy, right? Like, you have, like, just the meat and the veggies, then it's, of course, healthy. Yeah. But the main dish that's being marketed is not healthy. <laughs> but so go in, on. Well, in 2000s, there was uh, the Pizza Wars. Did you hear about that? Uh, Domino's versus Pizza Hut? Uh, yeah, Domino's, Pizza Hut, and Papa John's. And uh, back then... Um, a Domino's was the most laughable one because uh, we used to joke like the pizza was the cheapest, but it was the nastiest pizza out there. And Papa John's was the best 
um, in terms of quality, but Pizza Hut was the most popular one. Nowadays, Harsh, Domino's is the most popular because they completely changed up how they make their pizza. It actually tastes pretty good. And they're getting most of their business from their app. So if you order from their app, uh, they get to collect your data so they, they could give you some more uh, promotions later on. And you as the person, you're like, hmm, nah, I'm starting to build this relationship with a Domino's where I don't think Pizza Hut and Papa John's invested as much in their app. So that's what allowed Domino's to start building more market share. And they also had this promotion that completely revived the business. It's you get your pizza in 30 minutes or less, otherwise it's free. And that revolutionized the business and allowed them uh, to become like number one in the pizza wars. Oh yeah, I totally remember that 30 minutes or it's free thing. Because yeah, when I was a kid, okay, we used to, so I didn't grow up rich, right? I was like lower middle class, you could say, as a kid. So not poor, but lower middle class-ish. And pizza back in the day was expensive. Like it would cost in India like $7 for like two pizzas. So we would order pizza and I would keep track of time and I would like hope that this guy becomes late. <laughs> so we get the pizza for free. <laughs> You're 12 seconds late, mister. Yeah, I, we actually, I, I remember doing that. Like the guy is like one minute late and you know get like the pizza for free or like I would ask, I would order like this was, I don't remember like how long ago this was. Maybe 2006-ish, okay? I don't know. I, I don't remember which time exactly. But yeah, way back in the day, like when I would make a call, I would ask them, what is the time in your system? I would set up a timer for 30 minutes. <laughs> and I would hope he was late. And sometimes they would be late, like by like one minute. Okay, I was going to ask you that next. And I would get it for free. Okay, so they ended up, okay, so you got a few for free. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is uh, how Domino's was able to reinvent itself. And nowadays, I mean, Little Caesars is coming out of the woodworks. Have you heard of Little Caesars? I think we talked about it earlier, right? They had like the salad and everything. Uh, I don't know if they have the salad. I think we're talking about something else. Little Caesar, what they're known for is a large pizza for six ninety nine, and It's already made. So you go there. You don't have to wait a long time. They just give you the box and that's it. So it's so like Sabaro? It's like Sabaro. Oh, Sabaro is another pizza one. The pizza market is bigger than I thought. Like I used to just think it was those three, Papa John's, Pizza Hut, and Domino's. But nowadays, um, Little Caesars is coming. Sparrow has been there. A Blaze Pizza. Have you heard of that? No. I see Blaze taking over, Harsh. If, if they can keep expanding. So it's sort of like Chipotle. So they build you the pizza right in front of you. And um, it, you, you could just add toppings along the way. So you see it getting customized right in front of you. What's a pizza you like? I like Pizza Hut the best, and then no, Blaze I mean, Pizza. What toppings do you like? Um, extra cheese, mushrooms, and jalapenos, and, and beef or beef as well. You? I see. I like pizzas which are like you know the wheat crust. I want less butter, less cheese, and I want things like paneer on it. Then I want jalapenos, I want black olives, and this red paprika. With the sauce, do you like the red sauce, like the marinara sauce, or the white sauce? What sauce? The white sauce, it's just, 
uh, I mean, Alfredo sauce? I don't know. The regular one, the red one, I think. The one, that one uh, that's already there. We can't be friends anymore, man. I, I've never heard of like the white sauce in pizza. Never even come across it. So you have it's to ask for here. that. So you have to ask for that specifically. Like, instead of the marinara sauce, can I get the Alfredo sauce, please? And I'm surprised that's not the default one. I'm not a big fan of marinara sauce, uh, but I, I guess that's like the common one for pizzas. I don't know. I've never heard of all of this stuff. Like, so back when I was a kid, right, we would get pizzas, and like I said, it was very expensive. And we would get pizzas uh, on like important days, like our birthday <laughs> or something like that. So pizza reason, was like a rare treat. Well, the and, reason I bought up the pizza thing is because nowadays I see the sub wars happening. I mean, there's Subway, there's Jimmy John's, Jersey Mike's, Wawa subs. And you need certain features about you that distinguish you. I mean, what Subway's been doing, I mean, it's not going to work anymore. I mean, like you guys don't have the $5 foot long anymore. You can't, can't necessarily just market, oh, we're healthier than everyone else. There needs to be that wow factor that brings people back to Subway because I don't think it's a dying franchise yet. Uh, I think they could do something like Domino's did. Yeah, maybe. I don't know enough about this stuff, to be honest. Right. But- I mean, uh- I notice more businesses nowadays, Harsh, are investing in apps. Uh, do you order food from apps? Yeah, I use these apps like Swiggy, Zomato, and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a game changer. It's pretty cool. Like, they bring the food fast, and you know they have customer support, etc. Yeah, because I was watching this documentary on why um, Netflix beat um, Blockbuster. And the reason why is because they invested in streaming. Uh, they, they saw that not too many people were actually renting the DVDs. And it came to a point where 98% of their revenue was streaming. Uh, so they were like, okay, let's just double down on this. And I'm sure like within the next couple of years, there's going to be tons and tons of people that are ordering from apps. And if these fast food restaurants can build some sort of um, investment in their apps where it's not like clunky, ugly or anything, uh, then th- they could revolutionize the fast food business. What streaming was for media, I think uh, these little apps are going to be for the fast food industry. I definitely think food delivery is like the more important market right now and in the future as well. So for sure, I agree with you there. Unless it's like gourmet food, you know? Yeah. Do you go out to eat I mean, do you go to restaurants often? Yeah, I go to restaurants all the time, like maybe five times a week, where I typically eat healthy. Five times a week? Uh, fast food or gourmet no, restaurants? I mean, like mostly eggs and stuff like that. Oh, so you go to actual restaurants and eat pretty healthy? Yeah, I typically eat omelets, eggs, scrambled eggs, and, you know, rice and eggs and things like that, you know. And you like, don't binge. Some eat. weeks I go like seven days a week, like one meal. So because my family is vegetarian, we don't cook eggs at home. But I need the protein. So I got to, I have to go out and eat eggs or like order eggs at home. And because of the nature of my work, I'm typically at home all day, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't want to eat at home as well. So typically seven days of the week, one week, one day, like you know, one one meal, I'll have like fifteen-ish eggs. And I go to a restaurant, I know it's super healthy, the guy knows me, 
he cooks it in butter, no oil, he cleans the plate and everything, and I can work on my computer while like I'm eating. So there's that social atmosphere as well. Yeah, and you know, it's healthy. The food is just eggs and, you know, butter, cooked in butter. Sometimes I'll order like a mango milkshake, you know, with actual mangoes and not like bullshit and sugar. Hmm. So See, I was I was thinking that you normally eat at home and like for you like you rarely go to restaurants. So I'm I'm realizing that it's flipped. yeah i go to restaurants all the time but i order healthy things you ever work in coffee shops man i don't i've never done any slave work in a long time but no no no, no, i'm talking about working on your business in coffee shops oh yeah i used to do that earlier okay because i mean if you run an internet business harsh often it could get boring or lonely if you're working at your crib all the time Uh, exactly So Starbucks, I mean, they, they saw that and they started to tap into that. They give you fast uh, Wi-Fi. So there was a period in 2019, I would go to Starbucks all the time. And there was a bunch of entrepreneurs around the area. And we'd all network, we'd all talk, we'd work together. And the day just flew by. Yeah, that works. Like Starbucks is like a good place to work. My only issue with Starbucks is that it encourages, like, when you're in that atmosphere, it encourages you to eat bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, it encourages you to eat the sugar cake, which they call coffee, and what have you. So, I never eat the food there. I, I drink the coffee, yeah, but, <laughs> but what their do food who, like went there just for Wi-Fi. And <laughs> their food looks too fancy to me. I'm one of those guys that I don't like fancy stuff. I like, like, I would. You ever been to one of those restaurants where? You pay like a hundred bucks and they barely give you any food. You leave hungry. And they're like, oh, well, it's the fancy place. So you got to go yeah, there every now and then. Fancy. I don't like those places. It's like, I hate those places, man. I don't know why people go there. Maybe I don't have a defined taste. Well, the restaurant business, I mean, it's um, you're not just selling the food. You're selling an experience as well. Yeah, but the experience is ruined if there's not enough food on the table, you know? <laughs> Especially for someone like me, right? I weigh 93 kgs right now. I need to eat. 93 kgs? How much is I'm that? I'm six foot tall. I weigh 93 kgs. I'm I'm used to eating 3,000 calories a day. I need to eat. You're bringing me like two dumplings or some bullshit like that. Like I'm not coming here again. <laughs> right, right, right. So that's 205 pounds. Yeah, so I, I spent like the last few months cutting. I was at 103 something and I cut 10 kg. And right now I'm bulking a slow, slowly and back to 100 and 100 something. Let's see. Mm-hmm. So I'm on your Twitter. There's another tweet that you have. Um, social skills advice. They don't want to improve, be better or learn the truth. They want to feel good about themselves. They want to hear what they already think and want good vibes, even if they are lies. Operate with this default. Only switch with very specific people. Um. That's an interesting tweet. You, you want to break that down? Sure. But first, I want to hear your thoughts on it. Partially because I'm curious and partially because, you know, I've been doing a lot of calls today and my voice is very tired. So I got to drink some water. So I'll hear so, you while you talk. This reminds me of a, a talking point that we had with Kyle when he was on our podcast. Mm-hmm. And you you basically asked Kyle, do you think overly logical people struggle with girls? Because they're too logical where they don't know how to engage the feeling part. And Kyle said yes. And I said yes as well. Um, 
now we're talking about social skills. I would say that's exactly the case. Uh, th- this is one of the reasons, Harsh, where I don't try to just give advice to everyone unless they ask. And there's been a few times where, you know, people were like giving me advice that I didn't ask for. And even if it was sound advice, I noticed like just feelings wise, I was just like, huh, I didn't ask. I mean, you're, you're talking a little too much. And it was this weird feeling. Uh, and the keyword is feeling. So that's when I started to think, I wonder if I'm over here like being too like truthful with people if they feel the same exact things. And the answer is yes. So nowadays, like unless you're one of my like really good friends, like I know you like that, I keep it what you're pretty much saying. Like make them feel good. Don't be too logical. Don't nitpick them too much and allow them to feel good and they'll become some brand ambassadors for you. Um, the most popular blog on my website, Harsh, ArmaniTalks.com, mm-hmm. by the way, uh, is the psychology of nitpicking. And I talk about in that blog how those people who nitpick have some of the best intentions out there. Uh, unfortunately, they're just committing a cardinal sin, which is being too logical with people. You you do that with machines. You do that with people, and you'll uh, build enemies over time. So I agree with that tweet. Yeah, that's pretty much what I was trying to convey as well. Where, And also the fact that a lot of people don't really want to improve. In a sense that it's not their interest. They don't care about improvement. They just want to feel good and you know live their life peacefully or not peacefully, whatever. But they don't care about suggestions on how to get better. Mm-hmm. And when you give them these suggestions, you are annoying them. Yeah. It's like, Arman, if I think, if you think that you dress well and I'm constantly giving you suggestions on how to dress better, but you already think you dress well and you don't want to change, you'll, go, you, you'll start finding me annoying. Like, like I don't care about, like, I think I dress well. Why are you telling me again and again how to dress well? Like, what is this? What is wrong? You know, I didn't ask you for dressing advice. I'm dressing well. And so you are wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like that. Plus, a lot of people who are not explicitly into self-improvement, they're not very good at taking criticism in the sense that they don't want to hear negative things about them. They want to hear something they can improve. They want to hear things that they're doing right. So someone who is into self-improvement, when they criticize or like try to help someone who's not, they essentially just piss the other guy off. Well, that's another part of social skills, Harsh, where when you critique someone, it's it's about the delivery more than the message in itself. And that's not something that is a popular um, notion, especially for logical people. They're like, True, well, but Arman, it's also about the receiver. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, if someone's fat and you're telling them that they're fat, if the receiver is like, open to the idea of improving, then he's going to be like, yeah, thank you for telling me. If they're not, they're <laughs> going to start crying. I just I just pictured someone calling someone else fat and like their reaction. <laughs> thank you for telling me. No, that works in the sense that, you know, when I bulked once, I bulked to like 104 and I didn't have that much muscle. Like not, not this time, but like way back, like 2016. 
like I, I went overboard with eating and I like got really fat. <laughs> and then like sometimes my friends would say I'm fat and like I would appreciate that because that would keep me accountable with losing weight, you know. It would tell me the reality is that I'm getting fat. I'm not getting stronger anymore. Did it so, ever sting? No. It you know like it never feels good to be called fat, but in my <laughs> mindset I liked like I knew that they're being honest with me and I appreciate that. but not everyone is like that you see what i mean so it depends on the receiver so what's your advice with that let's say you lead a few people where you have to give them criticism how would you recommend you they do it have to give them criticism then you should like do it in like a polite way or you know you, you it depends on like it like i said it depends on the receiver you know some people can handle direct truth some people have to be handled indirectly and some people have to be fired mhm what if it's a friend if it's a friend then you know you like it depends on what they're doing okay so if you think you can help them you mention it once twice but if there is no reception then you just like leave it you know it's their life so this is one of those fields i've always been torn in because there are times when you know someone will come and be like yo what do you think and i could give the i could give the message and i don't have to worry about my delivery too much other times they'll be complaining about something and they're like blaming everyone else and i'm like mm. and i really want to tell them that this thing that they're complaining about is actually their fault how do i deliver it so i'm over here delivering it with a nice message they kind of get it but they're like no 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 i'm pretty sure it's the other person's fault um So this is one of those things I've always been torn about. I I think it's a judgment call of when to critique someone. Uh, of course. The, number one is like, you know, make sure that they um are receptive like you've been saying. But another thing is, you know, there's like those scenarios harsh where you mean the best for them. Like, let's say one of your buddies are always getting like heavy even though they want to lose weight and they're saying, "Oh, it's because my parents cook a lot of food at home." I mean you as a friend are going to be like uh oh, well it's not really your you parents fault though. Yeah, you don't have to eat it. Uh, that's where I think another factor of social skills is when those situations present itself being be able to criticize them in such a way where they have no clue that they're being criticized. I think that's a big part of charm as well. I agree with you there, but what I'm saying is there are many people in the world who are perfectly aware of what they're doing and they're okay with it or they're not okay with it but they don't want to change and when you criticize those guys there is like you gain nothing except making an enemy mm i see what you're saying now with that being said has anyone ever criticized you that y- you thought you have no business criticizing me i mean what's the big deal with your life it used to happen when i was younger like i remember i, I used to play tennis as a kid right and a f- f- friend of my father saw me play and back then i wasn't like very fit right back when i was 13 years old and he told me that you know like you're not running enough and you know you're like chubby and you can't like and i was like you know in my head like i didn't of course tell this to this guy's face but like, what business does this guy have you know like what the fuck like you know <laughs> but 
now that I think back at it, like he was doing me a favor. I was just not the right person back then to view it in that sense. Right, and, yeah, and sometimes over time, all criticism I think isn't I'm fairly receptive to criticism. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I would say sometimes all criticism is not good criticism, where they're giving you criticism from a limited understanding, not the bigger picture. And um, I, I could give you an example. Uh, there was this one time, I would say 2018, 2019, when I was working with a public speaking coach, and he's just like, look, uh, YouTube is a waste of time. Like, you shouldn't be doing YouTube at all. Like, it's just a fad. Like, it's a, And he's just over here critiquing. And this is a pretty decorated uh, guy. And You can tell us his though, name, right? Because he doesn't uh, watch YouTube for sure. <laughs> so he won't find out. <laughs> no, no, no. And this is where the story changes. So um, I was like, no, nah, no, nah, man. I, I have a good feeling about YouTube. You know, it compounds views. Like uh, there's organic search and all that stuff. And he wasn't getting anything of what I was talking about. Uh, he was operating with that limited perspective that he was having, which was right in his times. But in 2020, uh, when the coronavirus hit, I mean, his live events a lot of it started to get canceled. So he hits me up and he's just like, uh, Armani, uh, what was this YouTube thing you were <laughs> bringing up again? Um, so now I, I think he has a YouTube channel or he's working on it. And it just shows that just because someone's criticizing doesn't always mean that they know what they're talking about. And it's like, if you don't have that somewhat of a stubbornness, you're just listening to every criticism that you're getting. And then there's no filtration. For sure. If you take advice from everyone, it eventually cancels out, you know? You ever had that one moment where it's a, a respected person that's critiquing you? And, and this is what I'm talking about with this scenario. Like, this isn't just a regular guy. This is like a, a respected figure in his field uh, critiquing. But I'm just like, no, 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 I'm not necessarily agreeing with this at all. And I think that's when it becomes tougher if it's just a joe schmo that's critiquing you like i think you should lift like this not like this i'm like man what, what are you talking about but if it's a decorated person in their field now it's it becomes tougher don't you think agreed but that hasn't yeah. happened to me yet so i was gonna I'm ask you calling. you never had that, you never had that moment where like a big dog was like harsh you're doing this this and this wrong no i never had that happen yet <laughs> That's what's up, man. So what are you working on nowadays? Has it happened to you? Well, well, yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the examples I gave with, um, with the uh, speaking coach. Uh, I'm thinking about another scenario. Oh, I had another scenario. Um, this was in the, my basketball days when I used to play a lot of basketball. Um, so for a while, like the circle that I would play with, I was normally the best player along with another guy who was equally as good and on some days better. And his philosophy in the game of basketball was way different than mine. Uh, he believed in like staying right by the rim, getting big so you could get easy buckets. While me, I wanted to get uh, like three point shots, the long shots. And he would just critique me just like, you got to toughen up. You got to like drive in. And I'm like, I see what you're saying, man. But like, why am I going to work? extra hard for two points when I could aim better and get three points. Um, a long story short, it just showed me like, just because some people are giving criticism doesn't mean it's the right criticism. 
Um, and I think that, that that's what's tougher for our generation, Harsh, especially in the information age, where that's what most people do when they're having conversations. And your friends realize that you have a business. They just start throwing advice your way. If I were doing this, I, um, if I were you, I'd be doing this, that, and the third. But it's like, well, you're not me. So you don't have the full vision that I'm speaking about. I'm actually surprised you haven't had that more because um, I'm assuming like a lot of your buddies are like, oh, if I was running Life Math Money, I'd do X, Y, and Z. I don't have that much of, I don't talk about LMM with random people, you know, or the guys I know. Smart. Keep keep it low key. Yeah. I will say that, you know, most people will give you advice on topics they don't really know or understand, right? Mm -hmm. For example, like someone who's fat will give you advice on weight loss, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Broke people will tell you how to invest in stocks. Which is also ridiculous. People who have never of... run a business online will tell you how to do it or what mistakes you're making, mm-hmm. which is bullshit. Etc. A lot of advice uh, comes from ego. That's what I've noticed. Uh, I could give you one more example. Uh, so there was this one guy that I know uh, who, you know, he's been in the speaking game. And this is uh, different from the first guy I was talking about. Uh, this guy's more around my age. And you know, he got this idea. It's like, yo, you just focus on one thing and you make that perfect. And that's the key to success. So he got a speaking gig, which um, he did for free, right? He didn't get paid for it, but it was a speaking gig, which was a good news. And he spoke in front of, I would say, 300 people. And after that moment, you know, he had this swag to him. He felt really proud. And we were chilling one day and we were talking and he was just like, "Um, so what are you working on? I tell him a few things and then I say, oh, I'm making some Skillshare classes as well. And I could just tell as we were talking that he just wanted to give someone the advice of just focus on one thing. So as soon as I bring up the Skillshare classes, he's just like, well, Armani, I don't know if you should do Skillshare classes. You should just focus on one thing. And let me explain to you why you should. It's like he was waiting for the entire conversation for it to just get to that point. Uh, long story short, five months later, he gives me a call and he's like, hey, uh, Arman, how, how do I set up Skillshare? I really want to do that. I was like, oh, wait, so you want to start uh, Skillshare classes now too? So it just got me thinking like in our conversation five months back, like how the advice that he was giving wasn't really advice that was going to benefit me. It was more so to show off the knowledge that he accumulated. And tons of people give advice like that, where they're not asking where you're trying to go, where you are right now. They just want to show off. Giving advice is a lot like rambling, where when someone's rambling, they physically feel good. Or when someone's talking about themselves, it releases the same pleasure um, in the brain as when they're having sex. So that's why people love talking about themselves. Likewise, people love to give advice not to help the other person, but just to show off how smart they are. I've noticed that. You're right about that, where people will give advice when they haven't been asked for advice and they won't take the hint that, you know, I don't want to, I've already considered this stuff and I've, I've made my decision. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're definitely right. It feels good. We've all been there. We've done it too, right? I've done it mm-hmm. for sure. Like a lot of times where I'm giving someone advice because I'm enjoying the process of giving them advice. It makes me feel superior. But the other person doesn't want it. Do you think there's a psychological reason for that? I think it's not just you. It's like multiple people. The less experienced you are, the more likely you are to fall for these things. Where you only care about yourself and you don't really think about the other person. Mm -hmm. Like people who are more experienced with other people will not make these mistakes. Like they know. Like I learned this stuff through experience, right? I didn't read it in a book. Right. But I wasn't aware that it was the same feeling as sex. Like that's interesting. Yeah, like I know for a, I know like there's been a lot of research that says that when people are speaking about themselves, it releases the similar pleasure hormones as sex. But nowadays I'm drawing a parallel with giving advice where my psychological understanding for this is when people are giving advice, they're feeling that sense of importance. And there's five human desires out there. Uh, there's the desire to know, desire to feel, desire to bond, desire to acquire, and desire to protect. So I'm thinking when people are um, giving advice, it's hitting the desire to feel and the desire to know. Because they're like, I know this. So now you should know it too. And it could be destructive at times because you know, this person can be a great communicator. Like they're speaking with so much conviction, uh, but their intent is off. With advice, I came to understand that it's predominantly about the intent. Are you looking for the uh, out for the other person more than yourself? And it's like, let's say you like business, you enjoy the whole process of working for yourself, but you're talking to someone that clearly would benefit more from a corporate job. Do you push your ego to the side and give advice that's appropriate for this person? Or do you just talk of business more? And uh, I, I would say the main takeaway is that advice to give it is a skill in itself. Agreed with you there. Like a lot of people will give you advice that works for them, but doesn't work for other people. And they know it, but they'll give it anyway. Yeah, like if you were to ask me, like, should everyone start a, a business? I would say, hell no, nah, man. I, I think only a select few should start it. Uh, most people could start side hustles. Yeah, that's fine. But... I don't think most people should start a business, especially depending on their work ethic. I mean, if they're like, okay, there's a certain time when work ends and I need that lifestyle, then focus on getting a corporate job, work your way up there. Um, Another thing, Harsh, is like to give advice, you need to know a lot. I mean, if all you've ever known is business, then you can't necessarily give the advice of working up the corporate ladder. So you don't necessarily understand the architecture of how that works. So to give advice, I would say it comes down to taming your ego. And I would also say it comes down to knowing a lot. And third is to be able to articulate yourself in a way that's easy to understand. Do you have a, do you have a formula to give good advice? I'm processing everything you said. Just give me a second. It's in my head. I'm running it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going through your uh, Twitter feed, by the way, as well. You've been, you know, you've... regarding the advice thing, I think that most people who give advice th- 
think they know the subject in the sense that everyone feels like they know what they're talking about so it's up to the receiver to discern what is good advice and what is not and you know sometimes you get good advice from people who might not be experienced in a particular thing for example you might get good advice on how to quit smoking from someone who has never smoked in fact people who never smoke might actually be people you want to hang out with more right so it it's more case specific and i feel that most people i think most people think they are expert experts in anything and they speak with that conviction when they give advice mm-hmm. so yeah so someone who is like not fit well can with a lot of conviction give health advice so it's up to the receiver to figure out what is good advice what is not because sometimes people who have a lot of experience will give you like really bad advice because you know the thing they're giving you advice about might come very easily to them but might not come so easily to you for example someone who is naturally good with women might say what are you talking about just go talk with them and you know it's easy yeah it's easy that works for him <laughs> but that's not advice that's going to work for a lot of other people so and the opposite is also true as well where they're not that great in a practical sense but they know how to coach very well yeah exactly so there is like more nuance to this topic that i'm considering it's up to the receiver to figure out what is good advice what is not and you know try different things generally if someone was naturally good at something their advice on that topic tends to not be as good versus with someone who taught themselves that thing like they were not naturally good at it but they taught they taught themselves how to do it well with effort and time those guys tend to have good advice so if someone was not good with women say and they learned to be good with women they can give you better advice than someone who was a natural yes i agree with that this is a interesting topic because I mean when we first started talking about this we just saw this blob called advice now as we're talking more about it we see that there's layers and nuances to it and it's important because the right advice can save you a lot of money or make you a lot of money and the wrong advice can cost you time and a lot of money at the end of the day though arman advice is just advice it comes down to you and whether you execute things or not Right. Well, I can tell you the perfect formula of losing weight, but if you don't do it then it doesn't work. There was um I would say last year I, I was mentioning how I was going to turn a lot of my paperback and Kindle books into audiobooks and I was curious about how the formula went. I was like, how do I exactly do this? And I saw this um webinar by a group called the Mickelson Twins. Have you heard of them? No. Uh, it's two twin brothers that talk about uh running a publishing company and i watched the webinar and it was so freaking valuable they walked you through everything and i thought wow like this is amazing and then later on uh, there was this popular youtuber i forgot his name i think it's called james jenny uh he creates documentaries on youtube and he was creating a documentary on scammers or 
people who sell you a dream. And he kept showing the Mickelson twins in his documentary. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm over here thinking, man, I just learned this valuable information from these twins. Are they lying to me? Are they um are they scammers? Like, should I take them seriously? Did I should I put faith in what they just said? And that's when it was a judgment call on my end. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna pull the trigger. I'm gonna turn my books into audiobooks as well. And I'm gonna follow the process that they gave. And since I did it, I made a lot of money from that advice. So it's like, even when you get advice, random roadblocks can just come out of the blue moon where someone's questioning the credentials of the person that you're taking advice from. And now you're like, should I put faith in it or not? So there's an element of faith in it as well. You see what I'm saying? Uh, So like this documentary, like it could have weakened the faith to a point where I'm like, Man, audiobooks in itself is a scam. I shouldn't waste my time on this. Uh, but me having faith ultimately in the information in the webinar was what allowed me to pull the trigger. So I never thought about it like that, but there is a level of faith that's involved in applying the information that you're learning. Interesting. So why was this guy calling these brothers scammers? So in the I, I could see this guy's point of view where other than like the the audiobook stuff, these guys have given some shady advice. And I wouldn't say it was with bad intent. I think it's because self-publishing is such a new field that they're learning along the way. And they may have given some advice that was not the best. And uh, people who applied that advice uh, didn't get the best results. You know, obviously they went on Reddit forums, uh, bad-mouthing Mickelson twins. And I'm sure James Janney, when he was uh, searching uh, the internet, to find scammers in different industries. Uh, He ran across these forums and then was like, okay, then these guys must be scammers too. So I've watched a lot of the Mickelson's twins content. I don't think they're operating with a bad intent. I just think it was, they didn't know any better. And I'll give you an example. Like one of the examples is um, bundling a bunch of your books together, which is a a great feature. Uh, But one thing that you're not allowed to do according to Audible's rule is including one book from one bundle in another bundle. And I heard this rule was subjective, but recently they've been cracking down on it more. Um, so during that time, some people who applied the Mickelson's twins advice didn't get the best results. And obviously when they don't get the best results, they're going to talk about it. So I don't necessarily know if they're scammers. I mean, don't trust my opinion on it. I don't know much about them. I just watched that webinar that was about it i see interesting i find I think, it interesting that you know it's so easy to claim someone is a scammer on the net you know, <laughs> like, you know? yeah and i'm telling you man i mean this guy this james janney guy you'll probably see his documentaries because youtube promotes him a lot he just hit a million subscribers and his nice. documentaries feel like like Netflix originals. He's very well-spoken. Um, you, you could tell he's gifted in creating documentaries. And if he says something with like his fancy British voice, it sounds like the truth. Uh, so uh, trust me, like last year, I was very close to not doing the audiobooks thing because I'm thinking, well, this guy wouldn't lie to me. But in this scenario, like the information in the webinar made me thousands of dollars. And it's just because there was a level of 
who do I want to place faith in more in this context? Um, What was your biggest takeaway from the webinar? Turn your books into audiobooks. That was the biggest takeaway. Because, I mean, we've talked about it. Like, um, I really did not know people listened like that. And uh, like the books that I write on, like personal development, uh, tons of people are like hungry for that type of information in the audiobook space, where a book that doesn't do that well on Amazon can take off in Audible because Amazon has so much more competition. And they're over here breaking this down and they're easy to understand. They don't use these big fancy language. So that was my biggest takeaway. Uh, and to make an investment, like to, for anyone who's thinking about turning a book into an audiobook, if it's, let's say, 42,000 words, I mean, you're probably going to have to shell out $500 for that. Now, $500 to a guy like you, Harsh, may not seem like much, but let's say you have other operating costs. Um, you may be like, well, is it worth it or not? Like, I mean, I can technically spend the $500, but are these guys lying to me? Am I just going to lose my money? These sort of thoughts come in your mind. Uh, but if you pull the trigger, who knows? I mean, this book that has been doing average in Amazon may pop off an audible. So for me, the biggest takeaway was, yes, people do listen to their books. And two, go ahead and uh, begin the narration process. Interesting. So right now, do you make more sales on Audible or on Amazon? So thus far, for the most part, Amazon has been the leader. But last month, Harsh, was my first month when Audible overtook Amazon. Nice. So yeah, so let's just say the webinar um, made me the money back. And um, it was a good investment. I mean, there's tons of people who will DM me and they'll be like, whoa, I, I never even heard of you until Audible. And like, I just want to say like, good job. So, you know, people listen to aud audiobooks now when they're driving in the gym, going for a walk. Uh, it's different nowadays. I've heard Amazon is far more passive than Gumroad is. Way more passive, man. Like, I'll, I don't want to talk too much about numbers right now. Uh, but one thing is like, um, with Amazon, it's it's a search engine in itself. It's sort of like Google, but people are pretty much coming with the intention of buying. Where with Gumroad, one thing I don't like about them is their um, discoverability feature. Where sometimes I'll be like looking for something and it'll pop up a book that I didn't even search for. Like none of the keywords are there. I'm like, they need to work on their search engine feature where I think Amazon has that down a little bit better. Hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize that one of the big things about Amazon that works really well is the search feature where you search for the product and you get it. I was mm -hmm. looking at the site called Snapdeal, okay? Like it's like it's like a copy of Amazon in India. And I searched for S22 Ultra, okay? So this is supposed to be a new phone by Samsung. And my old phone is like becoming garbage and I need a new phone. So I was looking for it on Snapdeal because my friend said, like, check out this site. Like it, it, it might be cheaper here. So I was looking for this phone on Snapdeal. And when I searched for S22 Ultra, not only do I get no proper results, I'm being recommended a bunch of sex toys. <laughs> what? 
yeah so when you search for the word ultra it like starts recommending you these huge dildos and everything <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> the search engine really is important you know <laughs> right right like so, i will never go back to snapdeal again right so as a seller on gumroad and amazon the pros of gumroad is that you keep way higher margins and you know who your customers are right and i would say the cons are that uh, the search feature isn't that good so i recommend you have some sort of other traffic source like a website twitter like yourself something um i would say it's a little less passive though cuz you got to do more promotion uh, it's yeah not you passive. C- yeah pretty much it's not passive you said it's not passive yeah it's not passive right you got to like drive traffic to the page right where with amazon i would say the pros are that it's much more passive like you'll often get checks on books and you're like oh whoa like i completely forgot about that like my definition of passive income is you getting a check and you're like oh i wasn't expecting that um so that's one thing that i like about amazon it's more passive uh, it'll introduce you to a newer people because of their great search feature the con though harsh is that you have no clue who the hell is buying your book um you could have workarounds for that where you create a lead magnet in the book but i'm just talking about for the general user it's difficult to know who your customers are yeah you can't reach out to your customers right like you have no communication with them you don't know their email id phone numbers etc so yeah for sure and, and another con amazon if you're listening to this here's a con um is that they split the reviews which um let's say harsh um for you like your product imagine all australian reviews go to australia's listing page all indian reviews go to india's uh listing page us reviews go to us's listing page this is annoying because you could probably have 300 reviews total but depending on the listing page you're finding you may just see 15 reviews so i think that's i think they need to do a better job in centralizing everything um cuz a lot of my readers are from let's say England and they'll be like oh, I left you a review I'm like I don't see it and then I have to go to England's uh, Amazon and then I'll see it and I'm like what the hell man like you having 200 reviews versus 50 reviews is thousands of dollars in sales which Amazon can definitely fix I heard it uh, used to be centralized I heard that it's not like it's not like this way yeah exactly i mean like um so so i would recommend you know you having a presence in gumroad and amazon um but it really depends on what a person is looking for i mean you've been crushing it on gumroad like what are some takeaways that you've had like your ups and downs with it the big thing is to have an audience and fix a problem in the sense that if you don't have an audience you can't really sell much on gumroad because it's not a platform it's not a search engine like amazon is it's more like a sales page and fulfillment platform where people can put their card info buy and get the product downloaded on their computer but it's not like a search engine people don't come here to look for new products they come here when you link them to a product you already have so your main task is to get a bigger audience so that's the big thing about gumroad you supply the audience and they basically facilitate the purchase process with amazon it's pretty much that they supply an audience as well mhm 
So that's a real difference. So my big takeaway is like for people is focus on building an audience. Gotcha. From multiple traffic sources or do you recommend, do you think one would work? One would work, but it's like living next to a volcano where <laughs> it's working for now. Like, you know, like you're living a good life, but let's say that your main traffic source is Instagram and then you get banned from Instagram. Then what? And that's been happening. Um, it's pretty easy to get banned from Instagram. Instagram is the worst TOC ever, okay? They will ban you for anything. And they have this policy where you get three strikes and then you get banned. But you get the strikes for any little thing. Yeah. Like anything. Like their hate speech policy is like so wide that anything is hate speech. Anything. There's also, a, like I heard some people like, They'll set up a bot that'll just keep mass reporting um, an account and automatically Instagram will deactivate that account that's being mass reported. So yeah, like, if, seems... if a bot can take your business down, then <laughs> that's not a that's not a stress tested business at all. You gotta have multiple sources of traffic just to be safe, you know. Especially nowadays where these social media platforms are owned by these extremely leftist people and the policies are also extremely leftist and you could just lose your entire business in a day. So don't have all your eggs in one basket. Another thing with Amazon, Harsh, and this is one of the, I would say, the intangible features, is if you have a book that's written that's high in quality, it actually becomes a business card and a networking opportunity as well. Where if you're in a networking event, uh, let's say you have a briefcase or a backpack, and you know you're talking to different people, and then you let them know that you've written a book. Often these people have uh, companies that they own and they're like, huh, you've written a book. Uh, would you like to speak in my company uh, about your book and give a small little lecture? So it opens up these different pockets of opportunities where I've noticed like if I just say, well, I, I have an ebook, they're like, oh, okay. But if I actually show them the physical book, they're like, oh, wow, like this guy's committed yeah, yeah, come speak in my company. So these are this was another little small thing regarding Amazon that I noticed. For sure, like a a book is a little like a business card, like you said, and a physical book more so because anyone can publish an ebook. Mm -hmm. A physical book takes more effort, commitment, and it's something tangible that you can hold. So it, it kind of shows that you went through a couple of barriers of entry to get this book published, right? Right, right, exactly. It's more exclusive, has more, you know, what, what's the word for it? Like, you know, you get more respect for being like published here. Right, right. And it, it, it just shows skin in the game as well. Like there's a few times where there was this one guy, he worked prestige. in Prestige, the word is prestige. Prestige, there we go. There was this one guy that worked in an insurance company. And I mean, he was explaining how the insurance business works. All I knew was that this guy was balling. He was making a decent amount of money. And we were just networking, having a good time. He bought me lunch. Um, and since he bought me lunch, I was like, huh, what can I give this guy? And I was like, man, I next time lunch is on me. And he's like, no, what I want is a copy of your book. So I thought he was just joking around, 
But he was like, no, I really want a copy of your book. And luckily, I had a few level up mentalities in my car. So I gave him one. And when he held it, he was just like, man, this is awesome. And we were all in like the same business um, networking group. And once a week, uh, we talk about uh, the one-on-one meeting that we had. So when we were in that meeting and he was talking about uh, our interaction, he picks up the book and he's like, I just read through it and this is awesome. You guys should all buy it. And him holding it like that, it gave me a lot of credibility as well. So I think this is one part that Amazon has, which it targets the aspects of a human that never goes away, like that feeling sensation. Like if you could touch it, then something about it just becomes real. Especially if your cover is nice. Like the whole idea that um, a book is not judged by its cover at all uh, is a platitude. Uh, Let's just say I've gotten a lot of sales because of my covers or lack of sales, who knows. So if you have a nice cover along with nice formatted book, um, there's a lot of these intangible opportunities that present itself where I don't know if Gumroad has the same thing. The cover I, I, definitely matters. Like, definitely matters. Yeah, definitely I would definitely matters. Definitely matters. Yeah. I mean, you said it with a lot of conviction. What's your story about that? I used to sell a book without a cover. Didn't sell well. <laughs> I had a cheap cover. Sold better. I had a premium cover. Sold even better. So people tend to judge your product by the cover for sure. And you can see that in the real world as well, right? Like, you see a hot chick, you want to talk to her. You see an ugly chick, you don't want to talk to her. And this is despite their personality. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, before people have read your book, how can they judge your book? They can judge it by its cover. Now, after they've read your book and they're still <laughs> judging it by the cover, then they're idiots. <laughs> So don't judge a judge a book by the cover kind of applies after you've read it. Right, right. Another thing I noticed, Harsh, is like if we're drawing that parallel a little bit more, I think that's why attire, like your wardrobe is important. Where before I used to be like, ah, oh, whatever, man, your attire is whatever. But for men especially, like this is your book cover. Like you could be a average looking dude, but if you're f- looking fresh, then your book cover looks fresh, and now there's that uh, there's that opportunity that you're given that before others may have just looked over you. That's one thing I've been changing my mind on a lot, Harsh, where uh, I would say fashion is bumping up its order of importance because it appeals to uh, the eyes, and humans are visual creatures. That's true, like, you know, how you appear is the first impression people have of you. Where if you're dressed like a slob, then everyone who meets you for the first time will think you're a slob. And the first impression takes a long time to change. Plus, could, how you dress also impacts your own mindset, how you feel, how you act. I could definitely see a a fashion company in the future that targets guys like um, like myself, and I would say even yourself, where a lot of fashion companies, uh, they I think they do too much. Uh, they have like they try too much to be trendy. 
I want like a fashion company that subtle. The what? Something that's subtle. That's subtle, and it's like clothes that I could wear fifty years from now. Plus, it's a company with a university built in, so they teach you how to dress.、Uh, they give you different ideas. So they're mixing education with the actual product. I think that's a company that could take off, because there's a lot of these companies out there where they don't necessarily just teach you how to dress. They just say, "Well, here, here you go," and it's like, "Well, can you give me some ideas at least?" Because there's guys like me who doesn't know like the science of it. I, I could get a general feel, but I want it. I want to get it down to a science. I want to know about color palettes,、uh, what fits nice, all this stuff. I think that changes with time, in the sense that a lot of fashion, like, is about dressing differently from others, and sometimes it's about dressing the same as a group. So it changes with time. For example, back in the day when people used to dress better, wearing torn clothes was like cool. But today, like being Dressed properly and not wearing, you know, torn clothes is like pretty cool. So it kind of like changes according to time and what other people are doing as well. But I totally see your point. Yeah, but the reason I bring that up is because there's a guy named Russell Westbrook, amazing basketball player,、uh, but his passion is fashion, and you know he's been going viral for these pictures recently of him wearing a skirt, and I'm like, you do what you want to do, bro, but. You can't pay me to wear something like that, and if this is what is coming to mind of like, oh, this guy's a fashion icon. This is what he's wearing. I'm like, man, there's definitely a market for someone who's a fashion icon that sells traditional clothes. You know, like traditional. I think is gonna make a comeback soon. I clothes that fit. I clothes that are sharp. It's dapper, but not too formal.、Uh, right now, like when I think of fashion, I just think of like. People taking too many risks, like guys wearing skirts and all that. It's like tone it down a couple of levels for guys like me, man, and yourself as well. Yeah, skirts you, are like way overkill. Like it's it's too <laughs> weird. You, <know? laughs> you should do one for、um, like bodybuilder, or you're not a bodybuilder, but you, like you get big, so I'm sure you outgrow a lot of your clothes.、Uh, do you struggle with fitting into clothes? So for my pants, I've struggled to find pants that are that have thighs that are big enough for me. So a pant that's going to be like that's going to fit my thighs will be loose on my waist, and be like baggier on my calves. And a pant、mm. that's going to like fit my you know waist properly is going to like not fit my thighs. So yeah, it's a little bit of a challenge to find like clothes which fit. So that's a that's a big one.、Um, By the way, that, Aman, I need to get going. I got to wake up at five tomorrow, and it's eleven, so I need to get some sleep. Okay.、Um, no. All right, my friend, you want to start wrapping it up then? Yeah, let's get some. I got to get some sleep because I'm doing this five a.m. challenge, and sleep is important. <laughs> I bet no, I I, I could tell. I mean, I, I was going through your Twitter. I saw a lot of watches. So. Okay. So I hope. All of you guys listening enjoyed it, and press the like and subscribe button. Your support means a lot. This is a new channel, so this is a new channel. So give us a like, give us a subscribe, and leave a comment. Awesome.、Uh, well, thank you, Harsh,、um, for the episode, and、um, we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Yeah. Bye bye. Take care.